Well, last week I gave an example of humanity's attempt to reestablish the relationship with God that had been severed through the fall. In the construction of the Tower of Babel, we looked at how the people of Babel desired to make a name for themselves, which was not necessarily in itself a problematic pursuit, but that they were trying to do so through means of control of God. They wanted a transactional relationship with God where they could protect their own interests by making God beholden to them. And I shared how we often fall into similar logic in our walk with Jesus, that we mistakenly think that we can wield obedience, that if we put good in, that God is somehow obligated to pay that good back to us. So this morning, we continue our look at this redemptive plan of God through history. And in particular, what we will see this morning is that God also is setting up a plan, initializing a plan to reestablish the, co- the, the relationship between himself and humanity. But this time it comes on his own terms. And so for the next four or five weeks, we're going to be looking at the story in Genesis of Abram, who is later renamed Abraham. So today we're going to look at the call to, to Abram his journey into Canaan, and an incident where he shows some pretty significant disobedience, I would argue. And so the big idea this morning is that this story is about grace. It's about a, it's how God ordained a relationship that he provided, not based upon Abram's behavior. In fact, at times, God is faithful despite Abram's behavior. So if you want to follow along and have Bibles or use Bible apps or the pew Bibles in front of you, we're going to uh, open up to Genesis chapter 12. Now before we get to the heart of the story, I want to give you some backstory as how we got here. We, we ended last week at the end, or not the end, but kind of the middle of chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, and then you have again just a bunch of genealogies, stories of the generations. And what we see in Genesis eleven twenty-seven and following is that Terah, This man named Terah is the father of Abram, among others, and that Terah takes his family and leaves the land of Ur, which is in modern-day Iraq, traveling to the city of Haran, which uh, would have been in modern-day kind of southeast Turkey. And so that's the setting for chapter 12. And we'll look at it in three separate sections, and I'll read each and then make some comments on it. So we'll start with God's call to Abram, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Follow along as I read. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So verse 1 starts with the Lord speaking to Abram. Now, if you are reading the ESV, there is a little footnote there, and if you go down to the bottom of the page, there's another reading of the verse that it could be translated that God had said. Not necessarily present tense, but that, that God was speaking in that particular moment, but actually past tense, that this call was something that Abram had received some time before. 
Now, you don't have to go there, but this fits with kind of this biblical narrative that we see as a, as a whole. Uh, Acts chapter 7, verses 2 and 3 says the same thing. So Acts 7 is the sermon of Stephen, the first martyr, before he was stoned to death. And in his message, he's recounting the history of Israel. And he states that God appeared to Abram while he was still living in Mesopotamia before he had left for Haran. So the end of chapter 11 has them dwelling at Haran, but chapter 12 is hearkening back even before that to the land of Ur. And so that means that there is a time gap from the moment Abram received the call and when he went to the land that the Lord would show him, what we know to be Canaan. Now, any explanation as to why is, is, is just bound to be speculation. The Bible is not clear why there's this gap in time. It's possible that Abram receives the call, and, uh, and that maybe that's what prompted his father Terah to leave Ur and go to Haran, head west. Could have been that Abram didn't want to disobey his father, and so wouldn't leave while his father was still living. We just don't have any idea. Maybe the ambiguity in the text showcases that Abram had put aside this vision. Perhaps he hadn't been obedient to it right away, and, and God finally broke through. Now, I don't mean to give Abram a hard time in this, but because th- this was a big commitment, right? God was directing him to leave what he knew, what was familiar. It's probably at times we may have experienced callings from God, and it can be hard to, to break out of those comfort zones. For him to leave the home of his father that, who had established it for him, to leave the security of the nation they were dwelling in, to go by trust to this uncertain plot of land. I mean, there, you know, if I was Abram, I would have been like, God, can you give me some directions beyond just where I will show you? It seems a little ambiguous for me, you know? He didn't have the map quest. That's dating me a little bit. He didn't have Google Maps to, to direct him as to where he, the destination was going to be. But in this calling... God doesn't just call him to leave home and set up for a new place, but he also makes some very clear promises to him. God promises three things to Abram. And as we continue to go through Genesis, we're going to see this with Abram, and uh, these assurances are going to be repeated. We're not going to deal with it in the next five weeks. But beyond just Abram, with his child and grandchild, even great-grandchildren, you see these same promises of God being reflected and restated. God names three things that he's going to give Abram. Land, people, and blessing. He promises land, that this territory that God will show him and provide to him. Second, he promises people. Says to make Abram a great nation, to make his name great. Now, this might be a bit misleading for us in the 21st century landscape because when we think of a nation, we, we think of nation states. We think of boundaries of a country, basically land, maybe a restatement of that first promise. But in the ancient world, nations weren't really defined clearly by borders, but by bloodlines. And so, another way that you could translate this is a people that God promises that Abram would have his own tribe. Now, if you go back a few verses, we already have a glaring tension in the text. God is promising that Abram is going to have his own tribe, which implies that he's going to have descendants, children. But if you move your eyes back to Genesis 11, verse 30, 
it informs us that Sarai was barren. She had no children. It's evident that she and Abram were not able to have children up to this point. I mean, verse 4 in chapter 12 tells us that Abram was 75 when he left Haran. Sarai was likely around the age of 65. Both of them were closer to retirement than the construction of a nursery. Now, this tension that exists in the text is really important because over the next few weeks, it's going to fuel much of the story that we're going to see. God here is promising Abram an heir, but what God has promised seems unbelievable and even impossible. So that's the second promise, a people. Lastly, at the end of verse 2 and the start of verse 3, God promises Abram that he will be blessed by God. And through Abram's blessing, he will be a conduit, the source of blessing to others. Now, if you read verse 3, God establishes a conditional relationship. Others will be blessed or cursed based upon the way that they treat Abram. If they are kind and generous to Abram, they will be rewarded. If they dishonor him, trouble is going to be headed their way. But even here, even in this, we see a glimpse of the overwhelming grace and love of God. And this is something we regularly see in the scriptures, right? God says, he acknowledges there's going to be negative consequences. There will be people who are going to be cursed. But those negative expressions are completely overwhelmed by the good that's offered. So look at, look at this grammar here, verse 3. God says, I will bless those who bless you. Those, plural. But then he says, but he, singular, who dishonors you, I will curse. Now, I don't think this is meant to be, a, you know, a literalistic reading that only one person in the life of Abraham was going to be the one cursing him. But what I think what this grammar is meant to demonstrate is how many more people proportionally are going to be blessed by God than cursed. That's grace. We see something similar where, you know, God says, I, I will hold people accountable for their sin to the third and fourth generation. So yes, there will be punishment, there will be consequence, but before that, what does he say? But showing grace, showing love and steadfast to thousands, and some people, maybe it's thousands of people, but likely it's meant to be understood as thousands of generations. It is completely disproportional in there, which again, I think shows grace. Lastly, finishing verse 3, through Abraham, through Abram, all the families of the world would be blessed. So not only is there this conditional relationship that exists, but there is a far greater blessing to come that is cosmic in scope. Paul is picking up this motif when he writes the book of Galatians, chapter 3, to describe the incredulous nature of God's inclusion of the Gentiles in the people of God. He says this is Galatians 3, 8, and the scripture Paul says, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Through Abram and his descendants, there was hope that a blessing was coming. We know with the blessing of hindsight, through the benefit of hindsight, it's a reference to the arrival of Jesus Christ and just this ludicrous inclusion of all tribes, all people. I shared last week how God loves diversity. We see that in Revelation as well. He's including all types of people in his covenant, not just those who think, talk, and act like us. So just to recap, Abram receives a call from God with three promises that God would make that continue, we'll see restated throughout the next few weeks. 
that Abram would receive land, that he would be the head of a people, implying a future child, and that God would be a blessing to Abram and through him to the world. So that's the call. Let's keep following the story as Abram journeys into the land of Canaan. Follow along as I read. This is Genesis 12, 4 through 9. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. Now, I don't have too much. This is mostly narrative. I don't have a whole lot to say after this passage. It tells us that after Terah's death, it wasn't just Abram who made this journey, but also his nephew Lot. So Lot was the son of his deceased brother. And it's possible that following Terah's death, that uh, Abram now is the head of his father's estate and have been a caretaker, perhaps responsible for Lot. Um, and, and we're not going to focus too much on Lot over the next few weeks. Um, the story that I know a lot of people know it in the Bible, it's Genesis chapter 9, which focuses on Sodom and Gomorrah. That's kind of Lot's portion of the story, uh, focusing on his residence there. But we're going to be focused, the, the next few weeks is really on Abram and Abraham. Same person, but name change, as I said. The only other thing I want to point out here is that verse 7, it starts by saying that God appeared, and what we'll see, again, in the upcoming weeks, I just want to kind of set in the stage for what we should expect coming up, is that uh, the manifestations of God's presence, when, when it shows that God appearing to Abram, they're often associated with more of these divine promises, divine restatements. And God is saying to Abram in this place, to your offspring, I give this land. So we have two of those three promises from that last passage restated. Now, as I said a few moments ago, we don't know how much time has passed from Genesis 1 through 3, what he heard, to Genesis 4, uh, 12 verse 4. But God is now makes explicit what had been implicit in that passage that Abram would have offspring, that he would have his own flesh and blood, and that God was giving them land, the territory that was in front of them. All right, let's go back, finish this chapter, and this section shows some uncouth behavior on Abram's part, so follow along. Genesis 12, 10 through 20. Now there was famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. Say that you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. 
So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her as my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. All right, we're going to get to Abram's behavior, but first let's discuss what's happening. So God had promised this land of Canaan to Abram, but then a famine hits. And again, a theme that you're going to see come up again later in the book of Genesis with Abram's great-grandchildren. But in light of this famine, Abram, Sarai, the household, goes down to Egypt to outlast the shortage of food. And Egypt would have been an attractive place because if we know nothing else about Egypt, what we know exists in Egypt is the River Nile. The Nile was a major river in the region, and so those living closely to it were able to better withstand the drought. So it's logical that that's the place that Abram is going to go. Now, an interesting side note, I know some of you eyes might gloss over here, but I love it when archaeological evidence, right, the stuff that our researchers find out, whether they're Christians or secular, supports the biblical witness. So there are records of an Abram dwelling in Dilbat. Now, I had no idea where Dilbat was, so I had to Google it, uh, but it is a city in uh, Iraq, modern-day Iraq, probably close to this area of Ur. This is where Abram would have been before his father left for Haran. But we also find texts of Abram and Abraham in Egyptian texts. And what this allows us to do, it not only you know, corroborates the biblical witness, helps us understand that what we're reading is true story, not just some myth, but it, it also helps us date it, helps us set it in human history, that this would have taken place around 2000 BC that this happened. So, they, they journey to Egypt, and once they get to Egypt, there's a lot going into the text. First, Abram is duplicitous. He tells Sarai to say that she is his sister and not his wife. Now, like, that's technically true, right? She is his half-sister, as revealed in Genesis chapter 20, verse 12. They share a father, but a different mother. But we have here, and again, I know for us, we're like, that's still a little bit too close to home. Uh, it, things were a little bit different in that day and age. But Abram is, is selfish. He treats his wife poorly for his own benefit, his own preservation, pawning it off that it's like, I'm doing this for you, right, so that I'm here for your sake. But Abram is highly unfaithful given what we just read in the passage. What has God promised? God has promised to be with Abram, to bless him, to bless those who bless him, to curse those who curse him. That implies a degree of protection. But instead of trust, I mean, he promised, God promised him descendants. He doesn't have a descendant yet, so he's, you know, it's kind of like, what, what movie were we watching the other day? I don't know, we were watching a movie. Oh, Elizabeth, had, he, she's just started Stranger Things. Sorry that I'm using you in the sermon. And, you know, if you've watched it, right, there's a character named Will, and they don't know if he's alive or dead, and, you know, they, like, find, sorry, this is getting really depressing really fast, but they find a dead body in, like, this lake and this quarry, and they're like, is it, could it be Will? And this is like, I know it's not Will. Like, there's, like, season two and three and four, and then Will's in them, right? So you know, spoiler alert, that Abram's not going to die. He should have known that. Anyway, I, I, I digress. So instead of trusting God in his provision, he's trying to take matters into his own hand. Sarai is treated like an object here, both by Abram and the Egyptians. 
She's praised for her beauty and taken to Pharaoh's house, i.e. to be one of his concubines, but she's got no agency in this decision. We see an eerily similar scenario taking place several chapters later in Genesis chapter 20. Abraham is traveling south of Canaan, once again passes Sarah. They've had their name changed by that point. Passes Sarah off as his sister. The king of the region, Abimelech, takes Sarah as his own. And the the text in Genesis 20, this is interesting. I I don't want to read too much into it. But Genesis 20 goes out of its way to say that Abimelech had not approached Sarah. But God reveals in a dream that this is actually Abraham's wife. I don't know if that insinuates that Pharaoh had. The text is not clear. But what this text should give us, that I think gets glossed over far too often when we focus on this, is great sorrow that Sarai is just objectified. Like I said, has no agency. That this isn't the way that things are supposed to be. Abraham Abram is acting like a coward. Focusing on himself and his wife is the one who is suffering the consequences of his unfaithfulness. Abram is trying to take matters into his own hands for self-preservation, but note who it is that provides, who responds to protect and rescue. Verse 17 shows that it's Yahweh who comes through. Abram is unfaithful. He didn't trust God's protection. But that's the one who provides the protection anyway. God afflicts Pharaoh's house with plagues, perhaps a foreshadowing of the plagues upon Egypt. That's actually exactly what your kids downstairs are learning about, perhaps as I speak, as we see in the book of Exodus. Now here's what I want to draw from this part of the story. This story is not about how great Abram is, but how great God is. These events show that God maintained his promise to Abram even though Abram acted in a a duplicitous, a morally dubious manner. And I think this is important, and we're going to drill down on this a bit more in a moment, but God's covenant is not about what we bring to the table. Abram is not justified by God because he's acting in a righteous or moral way. But he's justified because God, the justifier, is faithful. Abram made plenty of mistakes. We see a few of them here. Some of them were really grave errors. Abram, later Abraham in the stories, is not there to be like, this is how I should live my life. He's not a model for us to follow. I'm sure he did good things, but most of of these figures, these these, um, figures that are uplifted in Scripture are not meant to be our models because they were broken men and women too. But they remind us of the goodness of God, that even in Abram's grave errors, God continued to maintain his covenant with him. He didn't abandon him. This is grace. God provides relationship with Abram not based off of his behaviors, not based off his accolades, in times in spite of his mistakes. So put a pin in that for a minute because I want to turn to to application. And and I want to help us understand the story from 4,000 years ago. What does that mean for us today? What does it mean for our lives? And the first is this. The first is that blessings are not meant to be hoarded. 
In the opening verses of our chapter, we read about God's promises of blessing upon Abram. But these blessings were never meant to end with Abram. They weren't even meant to end with his family, you know, just generational wealth being passed down. But they were a means by which God was to bless the world. We have received much from God. I'm sure we're walking through these doors in very different, uh, you know, socioeconomic situations. But all of us have been blessed by God. We live in an age of convenience and comfort in the most prosperous nation of the world. These blessings that we've received from God, whether they are financial or whether they're otherwise, were not meant to end with us. Right? God doesn't provide, you know, monetarily for us so that we can just line our pockets. God is generous, but do we reflect that generosity to the world, or are we just turning it inward? Because let me tell you, it's easy to just turn it inward, live in comfort. An example of this behavior, I'm going to allegorize just a little bit, but an example of this behavior that I often go to is the Dead Sea. Right? The Dead Sea is one of those places geographically that has a bunch of inlets, but no outlets. You've got water from the Jordan River. You've got rainwater wa- you know, runoff from the hills filling the Dead Sea, but without any outlets, the water merely evaporates, leaving behind all this silt on the water. And the Dead Sea is called this because no- nothing can live in it, not even like bacteria and fungi. The Dead Sea has a salinity, I don't exactly know how you would calculate that, but some scientist has, 34% compared to 3.5%. So we're talking more than, or about 10 times as much salt as the nearby Mediterranean Sea, which is about the same that the Atlantic Ocean. That might be something we're more familiar with. So we think that the Atlantic Ocean, right, you get a mouthful of that water in the Atlantic, you know, you're, you're trying to like dodge the waves and one knocks you over and you come up with salt in your mouth and it's like, oh, this is gross. Think about it, 10 times the amount of salt in the Dead Sea. I think this, again, it's, it's allegorizing a bit, but I, I think this illustrates the point that hoarding blessings is a recipe for death. Now, it might not feel like death because you're living it up, but there's a spiritual death that comes as a result of that. So I want you to consider, think about it. What, where have you been blessed by God? And where have you taken those blessings, using those gifts from God to bless others? But the other major encouragement for us this morning is that this story is once again about grace. God's favor was, wasn't based upon Abram's works. In fact, we saw that when Abram was faithless, when he messed up royally, God was the one that was there to provide, to rescue him and his wife. It's interesting to me, though, sorry, this, I meant to go here earlier. It's interesting to me that Pharaoh shows more righteousness than Abram in the story, right? Because Pharaoh gets attacked by these plagues, And what does Pharaoh say? It's not like, oh, take this away so these sores go away. It's, oh my goodness, you deceived me. Had you told me that this was your wife, I wouldn't have taken her to be my own. So Pharaoh is showing a a stronger moral fiber than Abram. Even when Abram was faithless, God's still providing for him. 
so too God's favor for us is not based upon what we do, but on what Jesus Christ has done for us. As Christians, I say this often, that we should live as the most secure people in the world. doesn't mean that difficulties are not going to befall us. I'm not saying that. This is, Christianity is not a, a pathway to an easy life. But when we mess up, when we make mistakes, our first thought should not be like, crap, God is going to be so angry with me right now. But instead, that his affection for us has been established It's firm, that firm foundation we sang about through the goodness of the gospel, that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is pleased and satisfied in us. Now, as a parent, I would like to, in my ideal world, in an ideal world, I would like to show the grace for my kids that provides a safe environment that transcends the mistakes that my kids make. And I I fail at this, ask my kids, I fail at this regularly. But I want to be the kind of father that when my kid messes up, doesn't say, my dad's going to kill me. But instead, like, I'm panicked, I don't know what to do, let me go to my dad. That's the ethic I think we ought to have when it comes to God. Not that he's waiting for us to screw up so that he can bring the hammer down on us. But that in those times where we are faithless, to know that he, our relationship with him is secure. He's not looking to just remove the blessings, remove the promises. Up, oh, you messed up, sorry, it's gone. You know, like it's a wager, you know, that we're, we're constantly, you know, playing poker or something. That we, we go all in and we, are, we lose and God's like, all right, I'll go find someone else. In spite of our disobedience, God has continued to stand by us and provide for us. And we see this with Abram. And we're going to see it more fully through our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is a theme that we're going to continue to explore. Next week in particular, we're going to look at uh, Genesis chapter 15, which is uh, the actual covenant. I mean, I've been using this language of covenant, um, but but that actually means something in the ancient world. We're going to see that next week. And there is some, some real beautiful foreshadowing in that, that puts in, in very uh, pragmatic and concrete terms what I just shared that God would say, that through thick and thin, God is with us. So over the next week before we get there, I want us to reflect on these questions. The first is, you know, our first point of application. Spend some time thinking about how have, you know, what are these blessings? Count those blessings. A lot of times we don't think that we have blessings because we haven't paused enough to think about all the ways that God has given us, all the things that that, that the Lord has provided for us. So be mindful of them first, and then how are you using them as opportunities to bless others? Are you hoarding them, or are you, you know, open-handed with them? Second is this. Consider some areas that you have sinned. Abram wasn't perfect, neither are you or I. Uh, we, we don't want to have uh, Bonhoeffer coined a term that he called cheap grace. Cheap grace is grace that costs us nothing but costs Jesus everything. So cheap grace is saying like, ah, it doesn't matter what I do, God's going to forgive me anyway. Like, yeah, yes, that statement is true, but it's cheap. Like, we, we, we should take some time to think about the things that we've done solemnly. So confess those sins to the Lord, thanking the Lord for his faithfulness despite our faithlessness. And lastly is this, and this is one that we're going to drill down on next week. I'm excited for next week, if you can't tell. 
What does obedience look like when you don't have to obey to earn God's favor? If we, if we don't have to do anything to earn God's favor because it's already been earned through Jesus, what does obedience look like in your life? All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these stories in the scriptures that not only are rooted in history, but remind us and show us who you truly are. That God, there is not a thing on earth that I could do to make your love and affection for me wane. But that every time I mess up, that righteousness of Jesus Christ has been put up upon me. Lord, that you are satisfied and pleased in me. Lord, may this revolutionize the way that we live our lives, that we don't have to live obediently in a way that we're afraid of when the hammer was going to fall if we step out of line, but that we are free to live in a way that honors you. Thank you that as we walk on this path, we're going to have missteps, we're going to have hurdles, we're going to have places where we lose our way. God, help us get back on the right path. Help us get up and continue to walk and journey towards you. And remind us that even in those times where we are faithless, you continue to be faithful to us. For that, we're grateful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.